Welcome to Live at the National Constitution Center, the podcast sharing live constitutional conversations hosted by the National Constitution Center. I'm Jackie McDermott, the show's producer. This week, the NCC launched our Constitution Drafting Project, which brought together three teams of leading constitutional scholars to create, write, and present their ideal constitutions. Earlier this week, Team Libertarian and Team Progressive presented their constitutions. You'll hear NCC President Jeffrey Rosen introduce both teams, and they'll explain how they went about writing their constitutions, what they kept from the original constitution and what they changed, how their constitutions are similar and different, and more. Here's Jeff. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the National Constitution Center and to today's edition of America's Town Hall. I am Jeffrey Rosen, the president and CEO of this wonderful institution, and let us together recite the inspiring mission statement of the National Constitution Center to gird uh, ourselves for the rigorous and elevating discussion that we're about to have. Friends, the National Constitution Center is the only institution in America chartered by Congress to increase awareness and understanding of the Constitution on a nonpartisan basis. And that mission is well served by today's program. Uh, It is the launch of our Constitution Drafting Project. Um, Thanks to the vision of our friend Jeff Yaz, we have commissioned two teams of America's leading libertarian and progressive scholars to draft a constitution. And their homework assignment, which they chose to accept, was either to draft one from scratch in a state of nature or to revise the existing constitution so it embodied libertarian and progressive ideals. I should say that we also have a similarly distinguished team conservative. They will be submitting their constitution at the end of the month. Uh, And uh, we are tonight going to present to you the libertarian and progressive constitutions. We'll talk about what's in them and then we'll compare and contrast. And then you, ladies and gentlemen, will vote. Uh, We, the people, uh, can make uh, our own decision about which constitution better aligns with your ideals. So listen closely to the options presented to you because you'll be taking a vote of unimaginable historic consequences at the end of today's program. So um, I'm really excited to present uh, uh, our teams And we're going to begin with Team Libertarian, uh, and uh, they'll uh, present for about a half hour, and then we'll turn to Team Progressive, and I'll introduce them uh, then. Team Libertarian is headed by Ilya Shapiro. Uh, He is the director of the Robert A. Levy Center for Constitutional Studies at the Cato Institute and publisher of the Cato Supreme Court Review. He's the author of the new book, Supreme Disorder, Judicial Nominations and the Politics of America's Highest Court and a frequent guest on our We the People podcast. Christina Mulligan is Vice Dean and Professor of Law at Brooklyn Law School. She has also taught as a visiting associate professor at Yale Law School and a visiting scholar at uh, the Georgetown Center for the Constitution. Her scholarship has been published in many journals, including SMU Law Review and Constitutional Commentary. And Timothy Sandifer is the Vice President for Litigation at the Goldwater Institute's Scharf Norton Center for Constitutional Litigation. He also holds the Duncan Chair in Constitutional Government. He's the author of several books, including Frederick Douglass, Self-Made Man, Cornerstone of Liberty, 
property rights in 21st century America, the Permission Society, the conscience of a constitution, and the right to earn a living. Thank you so much for joining us, Ilya Shapiro, Christina Mulligan, and Timothy Sandifer. Let us jump right in. Um, I, I can screen share the Constitution and the really clarifying explanatory uh, statement, all of which our friends can find uh, online at constitutioncenter.org. But I just want to begin, Ilya. Uh, you were the, I don't know, the George Washington of the of this uh, project, uh, if, if, if not the Madison, the, 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 the convener and, and herder of, of, uh, of cats. Tell us, what was it like to draft a libertarian constitution? How did you decide to uh, revise the existing one rather than to draft one from scratch? And how long did it take you to agree? Sure. Uh, thanks very much, Jeff. And thanks to the National Constitution Center and Jeff Yass for uh, facilitating, creating and, and uh, engendering this, this project. It was fascinating to do. And I was honored to have been selected to uh, lead up Team, uh, Team Liberty. This was, we like to think, uh, an easier project for us than for our progressive or conservative counterparts, because the current United States Constitution, we think, is fundamentally a libertarian or more precisely a classical liberal document, a product of that Enlightenment age uh, in the late 18th century, as amended, of course, or completed or perfected by the post-Civil War amendments. And so much so that, that we joked that all we needed to do was to add, and we mean it, at the end of every clause. That's the only amendments that the current Constitution uh, really needs. The uh, dividing of government horizontally among the three branches of the federal government, vertically in a federalist system to secure the blessings of liberty. And then, of course, as I said, the Reconstruction Amendments further advance that project by extending the Constitution's very libertarian guarantees uh, against state violation, including, of course, eradicating slavery, the single greatest contradiction to uh, this libertarian ethos of the uh, American uh, experiment. We added some things based on the learnings from the last 230 years, such scholars as Randy Barnett and Milton Friedman, allowing states to uh, 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 reject or, or, or uh, um, eliminate uh, certain federal laws or regulations, adding a balanced budget amendment, uh, adding other protections from state constitutions. My colleague Tim Sandifer was uh, is a great knowledge of of state constitutions, and so we borrowed uh, certain things again to limit government, to protect liberty uh, uh, maximally, and uh, we did a lot of technical fixes. You know, so the random capitalization and word usage, as well as since we have a new constitution, there's no amendments yet, so we incorporated the existing amendments, at least those that we liked. Uh, into the main body of the Constitution, but you're not going to find the 16th, the income tax, the 17th, the direct election of senators, or the 18th, alcohol prohibitions, because those are uh, don't facilitate that. And we tried to avoid uh, changes or, or structures that were purely good government reforms without clear libertarian, libertarian salience. So for example, adding term limits either to members of Congress or Supreme Court justices may be good ideas, worth debating as from a political science uh, perspective, uh, or expanding the size of the House or the Supreme Court, for that matter. Uh, very interesting academic discussions, not necessarily libertarian, so we uh, we stopped, uh, we, we didn't do uh, engage in, in that. And fundamentally, we focused, as the original Constitution's authors did, on protecting negative rights, rights against being interfered with, instead of creating positive rights, like the right to education or healthcare or other things that have to be provided uh, by others. Um, so, um, you know, that, that's it. It wasn't, you know, it, it was condensed into about a month after I had to submit 
my manuscript for my Supreme Disorder book on the politics of nominations uh, until this was due at the beginning of May. Uh, but we had several Zoom calls and just hammered it out. And uh, uh, both Tim and my other colleague, Christina, added excellent felicitous language in various parts that I hope we'll get to discuss. Inspiring. It, the, the framers took uh, four months or so from, from May to September, and you did it, it sounds like, in a few weeks, and a very inspiring uh, document it is. Um, my first question, I want to just put on the table the main provisions that you've suggested. You have many important uh, suggestions regarding structural guarantees of the Constitution involving commerce, Congress and the states. Uh, you uh, rewrite the Commerce Clause to make clear limitations on congressional power. You uh, address the Declare War Clause, emphasizing Congress's role in authorizing military force. There's an Ellis Island Clause providing for a more liberal immigration policy. You limit the sweep of the Necessary and Proper Clause, which is the clause that gives Congress uh, unenumerated powers, um, and, and much more. So um, I'd like uh, your teammates to discuss uh, the important structural uh, suggestions that you make. And uh, as team leader, Ilya, who do you think should uh, best take that, uh, Timothy or Christina? Um, Christina, why don't you start off? And uh, I should also add, because I've gotten comments already, that a lot of libertarians are concerned about the postal service. So we kept the power of having a postal service, but took away the monopoly. So that, that's how I, we finessed that uh, particular parochial libertarian concern. Anyway, uh, Christina, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. So we kept the structure of the original constitution as amended by the Reconstruction Amendments, porting those um, um, changes into the main document where necessary. But the most of the major changes that you just described, Jeff, are more about clarifying or returning um, the powers or structures of government to what they originally were or meant. So the Commerce Clause, the earlier cases kind of held that you it actually needed to be commerce or it act, and it actually needed to be between the states. And we re-clarify the language to return to that because we think that's the proper role of the federal government. Similarly, the necessary and proper clause, instead of being so the, um, the mouse hole that you can drive a train through, returns to being a tool to help Congress en enact incidental rules that advance the powers that are actually explicitly delegated to it. But what I think is most important about the project as a whole is that it instantiates the values of liberty and freedom that the three of us and other people that might self-identify as libertarians really hold dear. And I think part of why, as Elias said, it was relatively easy for us to discuss what to change um, and what to keep was because we shared a common philosophy about what the proper role of government was for a flourishing human life. So some of the changes that we added, um, maybe you would call them structural or maybe you would call them cl just clarifications of rights, hone in on those values, right? So free markets and free movement, very important to the project of, of liberty. And so we have essentially, although Congress can make regulations to make the process of immigration or coming into the country regular, essentially um, the Ellis Island Clause, as we put it, um, allows anyone with peaceful intent to come to the country to make their way. And we think that's important to um, uh, the values of, of liberty. And similarly, one of the you know, it's a, it's a small change, but in addition to the what was the First Amendment, but now is Section 1 of a, of a new um, section in the Constitution, notes the importance of um, the freedom to lead a peaceful life of one's choosing and freedom of conscience. 
And that language is important because one of the most important parts of being a human being is trying to figure out how to live your own life without the structures of other people telling you how to do it. And we wanted to make this constitution inclusive of people whose values might be um, as varied as evangelical Christians, Muslims, atheists who live in a free love commune, you know, whatever your version of the good life is, if it is peaceful, if you can coexist among others, that's something we wanted to explicitly say was something that we wanted to include these values of tolerance um, and of being able to live within one polity with these limited um, structural boundaries on how to um, organize ourselves amongst each other. I think the other major thing that we try to do, and interestingly, the progressive constitution also does, is try to rejigger the balance of power both horizontally and vertically. So vertically between the federal government and the state governments and horizontally among the different branches. So we make some small changes to Article 2 specifying not that the president has executive power, which has been argued about as potentially vague um, as to possibly giving more expansive powers, but to say the president can execute the laws, being more narrow and giving more or returning more power to Congress. And similarly, um, we undo um, South, Car South, South Dakota versus Dole, um, allowing for um, the federal government to condition tax dollars taxed from the state being given back to the states on um, federal requirements. So again, re replacing power to the states, not letting the um, requiring those tax dollars to be given to the states without those regulations being um, followed through. So. The, the values there, again, are trying to rebalance power in order to create a government that is more likely to protect liberty. And I think, you know, there are countless examples of where those particular um, choices may or may not work all the time. But our goal was to try to create a system, as the founders originally did, um, where parties are jealous of their power, where they combat each other, um, and where the result is not a concentration of power that can be very liberty-defeating. Thank you so much for that uh, very uh, comprehensive discussion of many of the structural provisions that you embraced, as well as noting the connection between structure and rights in the case of freedom of conscience. Uh, Timothy, um, it would be great if you could give our friends an overview of the main suggested changes you've made for the Bill of Rights. You, for example, add a right to make political contributions to the First Amendment. You eliminate the preface of the Second Amendment, the well-regulated militia clause, to make clear that it's an individual right. You emphasize uh, protections for personal privacy in the Fourth Amendment, adopting, you just told me, from a state constitution that I'd love uh, for you to tell our friends about. You strengthen the takings clause and much else. So uh, give us the uh, overview of the changes to the Bill of Rights. So as, as Ilya said, a lot of what we did was basically, and we mean it. And so a lot of what you've just mentioned, for example, are things that we think are already protected by the federal constitution when properly interpreted, but that unfortunately both courts and uh, uh, law professors and lawyers often misrepresent or, or distort. And so things like clarifying that the Second Amendment does mean an individual has this right. It's not some kind of a collective right that's of the whole people. And, and uh, get, clarifying that the freedom of speech does include your right to contribute money to a political campaign that you support, which is already protected by the First Amendment, but many people deny that it is. So we, we added many of those things simply to clarify 
clarify what we believe to be existing law. But with regard to, for example, you, you mentioned the, the search and seizure clause, we changed that one uh, substantively. And what we did there was we borrowed language from the Washington state constitution, which protects the right of a person to his or her private affairs. This is language that is unique to the Arizona and Washington constitutions. Washington put it in its constitution in 1889, and Arizona included it in its constitution when it was written in 1910 and revised in 1912. So that provision was written, you know, well over a century after the First Amendment with the idea in mind of of, of, I mean, of the Fourth Amendment, the idea in mind of protecting individual rights against warrantless searches and against other intrusions into private affairs. Um, and so the idea being that this would guarantee not only your right to not have your home searched, but also your right not to have the government demand certain information from you. Washington courts have interpreted this provision in its state's constitution to provide some of the strongest protections in the country against warrantless searches, including warrantless searches of digital information like your cell phone information and things like that. So we decided that that was a good idea to include that in our state constitution or in our federal constitution. And we did that throughout the document. We often forget that America has not just one constitution, but 51 constitutions, and that the states have all revised their constitutions extensively throughout American history in order to address new and, uh, um, and dangerous threats to individual freedom that arose after the United States was founded. So there's no reason not to borrow from their experience in protecting our rights in the federal constitution today. Uh, thank you so much for all of that. And of course, the precise language that you chose is crucial. And I'm going to try to screen share and see, I, I, I mean, I hope I'll be able to, but on the thought that it may be helpful. Um, and then Ilya, we, we have sort of one round of uh, for each of you before we turn to Team Progressive. So I'm going to ask you, as I uh, turn to my screen sharing, which provisions you would like to emphasize. Uh, for example, you do uh, have a new conception of the uh, judiciary and the presidency in important ways. And tell our friends about how you sure. have rethought the presidency and the courts, as I see if I can call up the language. Well, Christina has mentioned this. We want to make sure that the executive power isn't some nebulous, uh, broad, um, you know, ever-growing ratcheting up of, of power that every president uh, grows, it's, uh, it's to execute the laws. Um, and so we've tried to, you know, clean up the appointment power to, you know, specify uh, that, that, that treaties can't expand congressional power. Um, we've even reined in the state of the union, if we will, making it, uh, requiring it to be transmitted in written form as it was until Woodrow Wilson. Uh, Congress can, of course, still invite the president to make a speech, but we wanted to clarify that only the writing is is necessary. But I'd say that the most important parts are some of the biggest ones that have been uh, warped uh, over the decades, and that's the General Welfare Clause. It's Section 8 of Article 1, the powers given to Congress, specifying that the General Welfare Clause actually refers to the general as opposed to parochial or specific warp, uh, welfare, not simply a majority in Congress. That's not enough. It has to be for the general welfare. The Commerce Clause has to regulate uh, actual interstate, actual commerce. So non-commercial activity cannot be regulated, uh, and in wholly in-state activity cannot be uh, regulated, with one exception. Uh, we do allow for the regulation of interstate pollution. This is you know, one thing when people ask me, what federal power do you think 
the government should have that it doesn't. And I'd say an environmental regulation of, of certain kinds when it's truly uh, flows uh, interstate, either via, via water or, or, or pollution in the air or what have you. Uh, and then, uh, as Christina mentioned, the necessary and proper clause to prevent, to make this just uh, allow laws that are inc incidental to the enumerated powers, not just new ones that uh, is an endless string of knee bone connected to the shin bone. As far as the judiciary is concerned, we just want the judiciary to be an active participant in this. And uh, whether you call it uh, engaged or, or there's different terminology, but we want the entire constitution to be enforceable by judges. And let's have that debate over whether they're uh, interpreting it correctly uh, or not, rather than, you know, are they being restrained or activist or what have you? Just what is your theory of interpreting uh, this and 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 definitely apply it, whether it's the guarantee of a Republican form of government, whether it's weighing in on the general welfare or commerce clause. Uh, we want the, the judiciary definitely to exercise its power of judicial review, because at the end of the day, uh, that particular check and balance is there to promote individual liberty in potentially unpopular counter-majoritarian situations. Thank you for all that. I'm so excited to actually have the text before us because it really is so clarifying. And Christina, on the judiciary point, I think you talk about a method of interpretation and original public meaning. And why don't, we'll see if this sort of scrolling sharing works, but are there other particular provisions and specific language you'd like to call out and uh, read uh, to our audience? Yeah, um, so I think a bit later, we have the, um, we specify that the constitution should be interpreted according to the original public meeting at the time it was adopted. In this case, it would be now, um, if we were adopting this now. And, you know, I think we have different reasons for, um, the reason I've always been attracted to that brand of originalism is because, is the simple reason that that's essentially how law works when you're interpreting any statute any piece of law, you look at the meaning of the language at the time that it was written, as opposed to if there's been a semantic shift over time. Um, but the, um, I think the most perhaps controversial decision we made that's structural, which might be interesting to talk about, is the um, returning um, more power and discretion to the states. So one thing we don't do is eliminate the electoral college, nor do we mandate that electors are chosen by popular vote. We keep the original, you know, we maintain the current rule that's, um, that states can choose electors any way they want. Similarly, um, we remove the amendment that allows for direct election of senators. And this was a challenging one. This might be the one thing that we were kind of debating about what was most liberty enhancing. Um, and so I think we're not as passionately wed to that choice as maybe um, we are to others. But the thought process was that, you know, it, there have been different times in history where the federal government or the state governments were better situated to be the protectors of liberty. You know, post-Civil War, it was more the federal government and you see power flow up. Um, but we tend to agree that power concentrated in smaller jurisdictions tends to be more responsive to people. And so it tends to be more likely over time in a general sense to be um, liberty enhancing. And I think maybe in seeing the federal response to the coronavirus, um, we can see how the relative weakening of states compared to the strengthening of the federal government, which makes it more difficult for states to get resources um, to tax relative to the amount the federal government taxes, et cetera, has put the states at a disadvantage at a time when the federal government wasn't acting as um, uh, dramatically as a lot of states would want. So 
you know, our conclusion on balance is that smaller jurisdictions tend to be more protective of their own people um, than larger ones. Though, of course, you know, in any there throughout time, that's going to, you know, shift a bit depending on circumstances. Thank you so much for that. Uh, Timothy, this is uh, the last round of uh, the initial uh, Team Libertarian presentation. Uh, I, I guess the broad question I'll ask is, how dramatically would America change if your constitution were adopted? Do you see it as a uh, clarification and uh, incremental refinement of the existing constitution? Or would the structure of the federal government, the administrative state, and the nature of the protection of liberty be dramatically transformed? Well, that's that is a tough question because I think there are there are many respects in which it would change hardly at all. There are other respects in which it would be a a, a big change, but be, by liberating people to solve problems for themselves without being guided, controlled, and overseen by a massive bureaucracy in Washington D.C., I think that that people would find private solutions to the problems that would arise much more rapidly than they do under today's system where you have to obtain government permission to make you know, changes and innovations in so many ways. So I think, although there would be some respects in which this would be a, a large change, I think that the system would, would counteract for that and people would solve these problems freely. You know, libertarianism never says that, that the market will solve all our problems. What it says is that the market will allow people the freedom they need to solve all their problems. Whereas people on the left or the right tend to say that if you give government the power, it will solve all of our problems. And that's virtually always a lie. Thank you so much for that. And there is one point that I wanted to call out before I uh, thank the team. Uh, tell us about how your constitution would check tribal governments, because that's an unusually interesting innovation. So that's that was a provision that I, I suggested because, um, you know, uh, Native American tribes enjoy sovereignty and government authority. And in many respects, they have said that they, they would like more sovereignty and government authority. And our proposal is to enable them to exercise that authority, but within the boundaries of constitutional protection. Ever since 1924, when Indians were made citizens of the United States, as opposed to being treated as foreigners as they were before, they should be entitled to the same constitutional protections that all other Americans are against their tribal governments, the same way that you and I are protected against state governments. Unfortunately, although Congress passed an Indian Civil Rights Act that was intended to accomplish that, the Supreme Court basically nullified almost all of the Indian Civil Rights Act in a Supreme Court decision in the 1970s. So what we've done is we've gone in and we've overturned that by saying that states and tribal governments are, for the most part, treated the same under our federal constitution so that you are guaranteed certain rights against tribal abuses. There's one notable exception, which is that we allow tribes, but not states, to establish a official religions, because of course a, a, an official central religion is a large part of what it means to be a tribe. So we allow them that authority. But things like search and seizure or the taking of private property, people who live on reservation or are subject to, to tribal government authority should have the same constitutional protections against those governments that you and I enjoy against states. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Team Libertarian. Ilya Shapiro, Christina Mulligan, and Timothy Sandifer for a uh, superb presentation of the Libertarian Constitution. And I will now welcome Team Progressive. Uh, and they will magically appear on Zoom as I introduce them. Uh, Carolyn Fredrickson uh, is the leader of Team Progressive. 
She is a visiting professor at Georgetown Law School. She served as the president of the American Constitution Society from 2009 to 2019, uh, where she uh, collaborated closely with the National Constitution Center and uh, is a great uh, friend of our uh, programs. She is the author of Under the Bus, How Working Women Are Being Run Over, The Democracy Fix, How to Win the Fight for Fair Rules, Fair Courts, and Fair Elections, and most recently, the AOC Way. Jamal Green is the Dwight Professor of Law at Columbia Law School. He's the author of the forthcoming book, How Rights Went Wrong, Why Our Obsession with Rights is Tearing America Apart. Uh, he uh, has been a senior visiting scholar at the Knight First Amendment Institute and currently serves as co-chair of the Oversight Board, an independent body set up to review content moderation decisions on Facebook and Instagram. And Melissa Murray is the Frederick I. and Grace Stokes Professor of Law and Faculty Director of the Birnbaum Women's Leadership Network at New York University School of Law. She's an author of Cases on Reproductive Rights and Justice, co-editor of Reproductive Rights and Justice Stories. Her publications have appeared in many law reviews, and she's also written for uh, publications from the New York Times to the Washington Post and uh, appears frequently on NPR, CNN, MSNBC and PBS. Thank you so much for joining us, Carolyn Fredrickson, Jamal Green, and Melissa Murray. I will start with you, uh, Carolyn. Congratulations and thanks to you for leading such a distinguished team. Uh, same question as I began with to Ilya. What was the process by which you deliberated and how long did it take you to agree and, and what are the core elements of the progressive constitution? Well, first of all, thank you, um, Jeff, so much for um, for this whole uh, enterprise. Um, it was a tremendously stimulating uh, and exciting project. Um, and thanks to Jeff Yass, um, who has supported it um, uh, so wonderfully. Um, uh, and then, and, and of course, um, my partners, um, I, I don't know if I could call myself the team leader. Um, we are a team. Um, Melissa Murray and Jamal Green um, are not only extremely brilliant scholars, they are warm and wonderful individuals, and it was just a joy to work with them. Um, so I feel tremendously honored to have had the privilege of, of, of doing that, um, as well as the many, many people that we talked to along the way. Um, and so, Jeff, to your question about our process um, Melissa and Jamal and I have been well, talking for a long, I guess, since pre-pandemic, um, when we first engaged in this um, uh, along the way. And I, I, I have to say, I don't think we ever had any major disagreement about um, the direction to go in. We really worked things through together. Um, we um, came to this uh, originally with the big question of how do we approach the project of writing a progressive constitution. Um, is that something that we wanna do by um, starting from scratch or should we approach it in, in, in with the sort of a more uh, modest uh, uh, understanding of uh, working on something that would be uh, uh, really relevant to today's debates um, and, and to try to address some of the major flaws of the constitution as it exists. Um, and with that in mind, um, we did, uh, much like Team Libertarian, keep much of the basic structure of the Constitution. Um, but our, our real um, uh, goal was to um, direct our uh, main focus to the failures of democracy 
uh, under the Constitution as currently constructed and or interpreted. Uh, and so we um, we really wanted to emphasize structural um, uh, the structural Constitution and changes to the structural Constitution more than we really focused on fundamental rights. And I think for many people, they will think that is is the opposite of where um, progressives might normally focus. Um, the, the, the stereotype is that um, we look to the courts to develop a fundamental rights jurisprudence um, and, uh, and rather than looking at the structures of the Constitution. We actually understand the structures of the Constitution um, as fundamental themselves in ensuring that fundamental, that the rights can be realized and, uh, and respected. And thus, we think the most important thing is embedding in the Constitution a much, much more firmly uh, a democratic structures. And the democratic structures themselves will allow we, the people, who are at the very beginning of the Constitution are and are the most essential part of it, to determine what those rights are in a free and fair society. And so then before I, I turn over to Jamal and Melissa for any other commentary, I just want to say that in that light, our major focus in this Constitution um, is to ensure free and fair elections, to establish an accountable and inclusive government, to ensure an effective government, to update the Constitution where it is outdated and in need of, of modernization. Uh, although we didn't go to the uh, the effort to update all of, to modernize all the language as the team libertarian did. But we also want to focus on establishing real equality. Uh, and we did add into the preamble the word equality um, to make that uh, point even more clear. Um, and we address fundamental rights. Um, again, as I mentioned earlier, we did not spend, we, we think that the most significant way to protect fundamental rights is through a a robust democracy with free and fair elections. Uh, however, we did want to make sure that some key issues um, that have been um, uh, debated in our country could be resolved in the Constitution. Um, and so that is was our essential exercise along the way. We did, um, all of us, um, as part of our inclusive progressive process, uh, engage quite a number of scholars uh, around the country in different institutions with different points of view, with different perspectives to um, to get as much input as we could um, to be as as thoughtful and deliberate as as uh, as possible within this process. Um, and so it was um, it was terrific. I have to say it was a great um, uh, undertaking. And again, I'm very very um, grateful to the National Constitution Center to have set us on this course. Um, certainly for me, it was a very enriching experience. Uh, well, thanks to you and your colleagues for uh, such an inspiring effort for, for taking it so seriously and for uh, so thoughtfully presenting a constitution that, as you say, really emphasizes uh, democracy. And your preamble emphasizes, uh, or your description says that although some progressives question whether the core constitution is a progressive document, you're going to emphasize its democratic aspects and perfect them in ways that you believe will fulfill its promise. Um, there's much to say about the structural reforms you recommend. You noted some of them, uh, the free and fair elections, 
Reforms include abolishing the Electoral College, eliminating restrictions on voting rights tied to carceral conditions, establishing D.C. statehood, establishing national uniformity in voting uh, clarifications, uh, ensuring government has the power to pass campaign finance reform, abolishing the Electoral College, creating a more representative Senate. I'd like um, either Jamal or Melissa to give us an overview of those structural uh, democratic reforms. And Carolyn, as team leader, I will... Uh, delegate to you the task of uh, uh, calling on uh, Jamal or Melissa. Well, I think this one I would, um, I asked Jamal um, to speak to. Of course, Melissa is also um, expert in this area, but maybe Jamal can speak first. Great. Thank you, Jamal. Sure. I'll I'll say a a little bit about what we uh, chose to do. And uh, as Caroline mentioned, uh, we, we, rather than um, focus on particular rights, we thought that firming up democracy was is the most important goal and firming up self-governance and representative democracy is really what we're trying to do. And so we, we, we found a number of places where we thought that was, uh, it was important to intervene. Um, in some ways, maybe the most important is the U S Senate, uh, which is badly malapportioned. Uh, one thing that we did recognize, and this is part of the project of saying, you know, we want to stick with something recognizable in the current structure of the U.S. Constitution, uh, is we, we keep federalism, right? We're not, um, we're not getting rid of states. We're not getting rid of, um, of, uh, rep- of representation at the state level, uh, but we're just um, adjusting it so that it's much closer to being truly representative. So our, our Senate reform uh, keeps one senator for every state, uh, but uh, adds other senators to particular states in proportion to those states' proportion of the population. So if California is, is 12% of the population, roughly, they get an additional 12 senators, uh, 12, 12 uh, and, and that, that goes on and on and on. So you'd have more senators in general, but those would be apportioned uh, to states with larger populations. Uh, we would eliminate the Electoral College. Uh, we, we don't really see uh, much defense of that particular institution. Uh, but in instituting na- a national popular vote in response, uh, we did choose to constitutionalize ranked choice voting for president. Um, part of the reason to do that is to ensure that the president is um, is more likely to be someone who's not an extremist, uh, uh, which as the one national office and the one person represents everyone, uh, we think is quite important. Uh, we have uh, eliminating eliminated um, m- much of the incentive for gerrymandering uh, at the district level. Uh, so we require independent commissions, which doesn't fully eliminate um, districts, but does allow districting to happen on a nonpartisan basis. Uh, we uh, allow campaign finance uh, restrictions uh, on the First Amendment. We don't deny that there is a, a speech interest uh, at issue in campaign finance regulation, uh, but uh, we, are, we allow um, reasonable regulation of campaign finance. Uh, one thing that I, I think is also quite important to mention as we think about representative structures, um, not just the District of Columbia, which we uh, guarantee statehood for, uh, but also uh, residents of federal territories are given an opportunity at self-determination uh, at regular intervals, either to become a state or to become an independent um, nation. So there, there aren't just these um, permanent um, uh, second-class uh, citizens within the country. Uh, and uh, 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 I think some of the other parts of the Constitution that don't directly 
relate to free and fair elections also do relate to making sure that consistent with the Madisonian vision of separation of powers, that no one institution becomes too powerful. And that includes the executive. We've made impeachment easier. We've um, said that the executive power can be limited by law, that's so limited by Congress or legislation. We allow for um, for legislative vetoes. Uh, we uh, And we limit the judiciary as well, so that the judicial branch uh, is term limited, uh, that the, the, the uh, judicial branch, when it finds rights, uh, is also um, chastened by a limitations clause so that uh, the finding of a right doesn't in all instances overcome any democratic effort to um, try to uh, uh, to reasonably regulate that right. Um, so uh, last thing I'll mention, uh, consistent with uh, trying to make this a document that can last uh, and that is flexible uh, is to change the amendment process so that it's not just uh, two thirds of the states, uh, two thirds of Congress, and then three quarters of the states, but uh, is also has an option for two thirds uh, uh, senators representing two two thirds of the population, or representatives uh, representing two thirds, uh, and then states representing three quarters of the population. Um, so that if overwhelming numbers of the American people support an amendment, it has the possibility of being passed. Thank you for all that and for emphasizing those. Uh, Provisions which enhance democracy in, in in the ways you describe in that that amendment provision is uh, central. Uh, Melissa, if one of your central themes in your progressive constitution is democracy, the other, of course, is equality, and that appears in your revised preamble, where you talk about securing the blessings of liberty and equality to ourselves and our posterity. Beginning with the Declaration of Independence, you tell a story of increased equality through constitutional amendments, new laws, and new court decisions, and your, uh, you would enshrine as a matter of constitutional text, uh, court rulings, uh, you would write women into the 15th Amendment, you include an equal rights amendment that explicitly guards against discrimination based on gender, sexual orientation, gender identity, pregnancy, and childbirth, and protects reproductive rights, and you extend equal rights to residents of federal territories. There are many other equality-enhancing provisions. Perhaps you could give us a sense of how, what role equality plays in your constitution. Sure. And again, thank you, Jeff, for including us in this project. This was a really terrific thought experiment and lots of fun to sort of abstractly think about how we might start over or not. And ultimately, we came out to the view that starting over was not something that we thought was consistent with a view of progressive constitutionalism, that the bones were there. But what we really wanted to do was enhance those bones and again, make them more democratic and more reflective of the population and of the people's will, essentially. So as you say, in order to enshrine the guarantees of liberty, we started from the premise that the original text of the Constitution did not really speak to equality, so we wanted to make that explicit from the start, and that though the postbellum Reconstruction Amendments abolished slavery and sought to include some members of the African-American community in the polity did not include everyone. So even though there were these explicit steps to be more mindful of equality, they were not completely comprehensive. So recognizing those limitations, we wanted to enshrine equality gains that had been made both by legislation and by court decisions into the text of the Constitution itself. Um, as you have noted, we expanded the understanding of the 15th Amendment. I think it's renumbered as the 14th Amendment here, but it explicitly contemplates women as franchise holders 
To that end, the 19th Amendment, which was originally the amendment that included women as um, franchise holders, has been transformed into an equal rights amendment that provides explicit constitutional protection for pregnancy and childbirth and all attendant conditions, which could be lactation and things of that nature. And we also defined it to include the decision to become pregnant as well as the decision to terminate a pregnancy to sort of encapsulate the full scope of reproductive rights and justice concerns that might be attendant in those decisions. And of course, we have provided for an opportunity for members of the territories to become fully included in the polity as part of the democratic um, scheme of this. We also added some explicit protections for fundamental rights to deal with the liberty side of this equation as well. And we recognize from the outset that most people probably expect the progressive constitution to be one that really packs in a lot of explicit protections for various rights and entitlements, maybe even does away with the constitution's bent toward negative entitlements or negative rights in favor of positive entitlements. But we try to resist that temptation again on the view that ensuring and shoring up democratic participation and the institutions of democracy would be the best way of protecting individual rights. Nevertheless, um, we noted that there were some explicit fundamental rights protections that should be included that have already been recognized in certain respects, and we wanted to make those clear here. We also wanted to clarify the scope of the state's ability to regulate, even in the face of certain kinds of rights. So to that end, Although we protect an individual right to bear arms in the Second Amendment, we specifically contemplate state-imposed limits on that right. Um, We have updated the Fourth Amendment's protections against search and seizure to meet the challenges of a modern, digitally-oriented society. And we have recognized in both the equality provisions and the liberty provisions that sometimes the guarantees of liberty and equality are inextricably intertwined. And so efforts to address reproductive rights speak both to a liberty question, but also to that issue of equality. We made more deliberate changes to certain fundamental freedoms in the Bill of Rights. So, for example, we reimagined the First Amendment in terms that reflect James Madison's original desire to protect both freedom of religion and freedom of conscience or thought. And we thought that that approach not only reflected changes in the polity where many individuals um, are not necessarily religiously affiliated, but nonetheless espouse a kind of spiritual attachment or affiliation that we thought should be recognized as well. Um, Recognizing freedom of conscience and thought also, I think, brings our constitution in line with other jurisdictions that do recognize explicit protections for freedom of conscience, thought, and belief. Um, We also reimagined the Ninth Amendment slightly. Um, We were very sparing in providing for certain rights protections, but again, we wanted to ensure that the Ninth Amendment could not only provide for unenumerated rights, but that it would also include an explicit limitation clause on the exercise of all rights. And We recognize that the U.S. Constitution has never included an explicit discussion of limitations of rights, but those sorts of clauses are features of other constitutions and other jurisdictions like South Africa and Canada. And so as a general matter, these limitation clauses recognize that rights, even the ones that are subject to constitutional protection, are not absolute. And Jamal writes about this in his forthcoming book. So that's also a great primer and part of um, the animus for our think or the animating principle behind us thinking about it in this respect. So we've allowed for a limitations clause that allows for rights to be limited to a certain extent to promote other democratic values, um, including the exercise of other rights. But by the same token, a limitations clause 
could also prohibit excessive restrictions on the exercise of rights that may be harmful to democracy in some respects. Um, Again, we recognize that lots of people would expect us to provide for positive entitlements here. We really, really wanted to think hard about this. And I'm not sure that we satisfied all members of the Progressive Caucus in our decision to forego the temptation to include positive entitlements. But we really felt that strengthening democratic institutions would be the best way to provide and ensure for a robust set of rights for individuals. Fascinating uh, highlighting of such important choices you made uh, from very specific choices. Uh, the, the Fourth Amendment updating to a digital age was uh, a wonderful draft of a challenge that uh, many have struggled with for a long time. The adoption of the freedom of conscience language was so interesting that you went back to Madison's uh, and, and Mason's Virginia Declaration of Rights. Um, Team Libertarian, interestingly, also had a conscience provision, but you apply them in different uh, and really significant ways. And then you ended by noting that you could have been more majoritarian, you could have been more focused on creating new positive rights, but instead you've presented a kind of reimagining the, the Madisonian constitution for a progressive age. So Carolyn, you know, the goal of this round of course is to highlight both specific provisions and broad principles that our friends in the audience need to know about to prepare themselves for their extraordinarily important uh, vote at the end of the evening. But um, uh, maybe I'll just uh, begin by asking, and I will call up, uh, call it up on the screen in a moment, why did you retain some of the anti-Majorian provisions you did? You, you retained the Senate, for example, although you changed the apportionment. You still make it difficult to amend the Constitution. You still preserve a high level of judicial independence. Uh, talk uh, Tell us about what it was that, that made you to decide to retain those Madisonian features and, and, and what additional uh, provisions we should we should know about. Sure. Um, well, let me start with the Senate. Um, we did think it was valuable to have a kind of regional um, representation, which is in, in many ways what the Senate uh, uh, allows, um, to have a perspective that comes from um, a, a larger body of land than might be represented in a single congressional district, which might really be mostly or just part of a city, for example. Um, and and so we did we did think that that was that that was important. But as Jamal mentioned, um, we um, we really wanted to make sure that the Senate um, was a more representative body because the direction that it's going right now is that senators represent a smaller and smaller. Um, percentage of the American people, and we wanted to uh, address that um, while retaining the um, the kind of the, the the ability to have regions um, represented in the Senate um, and and create a body that wasn't simply a, a kind of a, a duplicative of, of the House. Um, and thus, we um, um, and Jamal is um, uh, is to be credited for this the the the, the mechanism of allocating additional Senate seats based on um, a, a, a percentage of population, um, which then both retains the, 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 the ability of regions to be represented, but also ensures that um, uh, the Senate is not so skewed in favor of a small group um, that it ceases to be um, a, a democratic body in any, in any sense. So we did retain it um, uh, uh, for those purposes. Um, I think we also all agree that an independent judiciary is a critical factor. I mean, we we were not um, we as as our introduction makes very plain. 
um, the separation of powers and checks and balances that's um, that's uh, the premise of the uh, the Constitution um, uh, is something that for us um, is is uh, is one of its better and best features um, and something to be retained. And a critical piece of that is having a judiciary um, that is independent. How else can you check uh, uh, a, a, a executive, for example, that's run amok without a judiciary that's independent? Um, and we we do think that the judiciary needs to be made more independent. Um, uh, and be less politicized. And that is one um, major reason why we look towards these uh, term limits uh, for judges, for uh, for justices, uh, uh, 18-year term limits to ensure that, um, for example, one president um, who, who could have, for example, four vacancies um, wouldn't determine the, the future of the United States for um, for a generation by appointing very young uh, judges who would um, serve for a period of time that would be very much out of step with with historical practice, um, as well as with a, a more robust democracy. Um, so those are a couple of the areas we um, um, we were very um, uh, uh, clear on. Um, and so, you know, we we we're not, uh, you know, clearly that this this constitution is not meant to be just a purely uh, a majoritarian document because the fundamental rights piece um, as well uh, speaks to that. And I think, Melissa, you wanted to jump in here. Well, I, I guess I just wanted to say, too, that we understood this exercise not solely to be about writing a new constitution, but also a sort of educational process of letting people know what progressive constitutionalism might look like or that there might even be different strains of progressive constitutionalism. You know, I think some of your audience have noted that there are two constitutions that might reflect a more conservative view of the Constitution, yet there's only one view that might reflect um, a more left vision of the Constitution. And, you know, one of the things we wanted to emphasize that there is diversity in terms of what progressive constitutionalism might look like, even within the progressive caucus. And so our choices here and our decision to consult widely within that caucus um, was purposeful to make clear, to think about other ways of doing things and to ensure that we were weighing lots of different options. And we rejected some things and, you know, maybe an even more progressive constitution would have included them, so would have, would have thought about different choices. Um, but even the way the project has been framed and the way it's been visually represented, I think is really interesting. Um, the libertarian constitution is represented by a picture of the Statue of Liberty, whereas the progressive constitution is represented by some, ex, you know, upraised fists. And you know, we are fighting against the view that progressive constitutionalism is about burning it all down. And I think the three of us firmly reject that premise. We truly believe that the Constitution has the structure and the possibility to be a document that governs everyone, that has the ability to create and cultivate a more perfect union. And our view was to help elaborate those institutional features that would allow us to do that, not to burn it down, not to start from scratch. Thank you very much for that and also for that uh, important design uh, suggestion, um, which would better capture your uh, project. Jamal, last word to you in this round. Uh, fascinating to learn that the proposal for a limitations clause on rights uh, comes from your book. And in your Ninth Amendment, you say, 
the Constitution guarantees the rights and freedoms set out in it subject only to such reasonable limits prescribed by law as can be demonstrably justified in a free and democratic society. You note in your introduction to your Constitution that many European constitutions have similar clauses. Tell us about the genesis of that. And then please sum up in this important uh, final round any broad principles that you want to make sure that our audience understands about the progressive constitution. Uh, sure. The the limitations clause, the precise language um, of it doesn't come from Europe. It comes from Canada. Um, and uh, section one of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which has that um, precise limitations clause. But there are also other constitutions uh, in Europe and elsewhere that also explicitly limit rights. Now, of course, uh, one reaction that um, one often sees from uh, Americans when you talk about limiting rights is, um, well, this is going to harm minorities or it's going to um, be oppressive or something along those lines. Uh, but one of the things that we wanted to try to emphasize is um, there has to be some uh, balance uh, because rights um, uh, can also um, be uh, used to undermine democracy in various ways. Uh, our history is a history of trying to strike that balance in the right way. And so uh, I, I'm not suggesting and we're not suggesting that um, we have the perfect answer to it. Um, but we did want to emphasize that uh, that democratic elaboration, elaboration through uh, representative bodies, is one of the important ways in which we actually recognize rights. And so we want to uh, be able to encourage that kind of dialogue. Uh, uh, more, more broadly, uh, I'll just go back to the theme of, you know, we wanted to create not just a document that reflected a progressive vision, but a, a document that would be useful um, to people. The constitution we have is not perfect um, by any stretch of the imagination, but it, it also has some good bones that we wanted to make sure we, um, we wanted to create something recognizable to people and usable to people, but also show the ways in which um, with some, um, with some, some tweaks, um, we can make the constitution more democratic, more representative, but also, uh, re also um, uh, protect people's rights and their ability to, to flourish. Thank you very much for that and for that eloquent uh, conclusion. All right, well, it is time in our final half hour as we prepare for our, uh, our vote to bring in both teams again and to explore similarities and differences in the two documents to inform uh, your vote, uh, friends. I wanna thank you for your excellent questions in the Q&A box. I see them and uh, am uh, struck by them. I want the two teams to compare and contrast a bit, so I'll, I'll bring in your questions if I can, but I'm going to begin this round um, by asking you to identify areas of agreement between your two constitutions. Um, I'll ask each team leader to do that, and I'll, I, I don't, in the hope that it's helpful, I'll just sum up some points of convergence that the National Constitution Center's phenomenal content team noted both the progressive and libertarian constitutions conceptually aren't trying to write on a blank slate and are building on the existing constitution rather than completely starting from scratch. Uh, both strengthen the protections of the Fourth Amendment, both write new protections for freedom of conscience and association into the First Amendment, both reaffirm the importance of unenumerated rights, both make clear that key provisions of the 14th Amendment uh, protecting equal protection, due process, and fundamental rights applied to the national government, both converge around the need to limit the imperial presidency, both address the need for national power to, inter to address interstate pollution, 
And both have notions of constitutional reform and uh, changes to the ratification process. Finally, I'm not sure we really highlighted this, but it's fascinating. Both of you made it clear that impeachment does not require uh, an official to commit a crime. And uh, although your language was different, you broadened the grounds for uh, impeachment. So those are some areas of convergence that you both identified. Ilya, can I ask you to identify any other areas of convergence that you found between the progressive constitution and the libertarian constitution. Yeah, you, I mean, I I had some, and then you and your content team kept uh, spelling them all out. So uh, I can't off the top of my head, but I I do want to mention a couple of things. So you you mentioned the impeachment power. Uh, To be clear, our language is impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, other high, high crimes and misdemeanors, or other behavior that renders them unfit for office. So we're relying on the political judgment of Congress uh, to make the decision. And this is, by the way, not thinking uh, you know, specifically about Trump, more broadly about the president. We would like to see lots of federal officials impeached for all sorts of dereliction of duty in, uh, in, in various ways. Uh, the, the treatment of the District of Columbia, I mean, this is sort of both a convergence and a separation. What we did was to retrocede all of D.C., other than the parts occupied by the federal buildings, the monuments, the National Mall, uh, that sort of thing where nobody lives, uh, back to Maryland, the same way that Alexandria City and Arlington County were retroceded to Virginia way back when. And so uh, those residents of uh, D.C. would get their full voting rights. Nobody lives in the federal district. And if somebody temporarily does, then they get they get to vote once they came, basically. Uh, on the other hand, the progressives just made D.C. a state. Uh, we definitely don't want that because it would be an unusual state. And we also don't want to incentivize the further centralization of power or growth of uh, 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 you know, D.C. sovereignty because it's meant to be a federal enclave. Thank you for that. Uh, Carolyn, uh, similarities you discern between the libertarian and progressive constitution. Well, I have a bit of the same problem that Ilya has with that the, you, you kind of ran through the major points. Um, and I was going to emphasize DC as well. Um, uh, it is a point of similarity. Uh, it's a, certainly um, there is a distinction in how we approach it. But I think fundamentally the idea that a group of people should not be denied democratic rights um, that are uh, provided to all other Americans, um, I think is, is, a, is a key point of, of agreement. And I think um, we could certainly have a discussion about what is the best mechanism to effectuate those rights. But I think uh, that agreement seems to me is um, very significant. I also just wanted to say to Ilya, um, congratulations on the great product placement. Um, I think it, maybe we should have all thought about that before this this happened. And I, you know, I do. That's very, very creative. So um, kudos to you. Um, but I was also I was, you know, was heartened to see um, that there were certainly um, uh, some significant areas of overlap, even though there are obviously some key areas of difference. Um, but it was it was a, a fundamentally interesting uh, exercise to read um, uh, the the libertarian uh, constitution. I, I think it is also, you know, definitely worth um, remarking upon that we all um, had agreed with retaining the uh, essential structure of the Constitution. As Melissa mentioned, it is to some extent in, and to a large extent, it was because we agree with um, uh, the way that the Constitution um, ha- has laid out the governing structures um, uh, 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 and the, the separation of powers uh, as essential to um, a free and democratic 
uh, nation. Um, but it was also, I think, and I'm not sure if this played into Team Libertarian, perhaps not, but w w it was, as Melissa, Melissa has said, um, uh, to make this actually a, a, a direct and engaging educational uh, experience for people um, coming to the National Constitu Constitution Center to see how um, progressives engage with the Constitution um, and how it relates to current debates um, that are um, right now dominating much of our discussion about how do we protect our democracy um, and what what are some of the challenges we face right now. Um, we think that the way we wrote that Constitution allows people to understand where some of the weaknesses are that do need to be enhanced to ensure that we have a better and stronger process going forward. Thank you very much for that. Well, let us now turn to the crucial question of differences between the constitutions. Although you both retain the basic structure, you have clearly different emphases with the Team Libertarian emphasizing liberty and Team Progressive emphasizing democracy and equality. There are other broad areas. I, I don't mean to step on uh, your answers uh, by sharing the great work of our content team. So I'll just share the broad uh, categories of difference that the National Constitution Center uh, team was struck by, including uh, the scope of national power, uh, campaign finance, the Electoral College, the Senate, and constitutional methodologies of uh, interpretation. Um, but, uh, but, but let's really put on the table this question of why the audience, uh, in your view, should vote for your constitution rather than the other side by, by talking about important areas of Difference. So, Ilya, you, you can direct this question to uh, uh, you know whomever you think is best equipped to deal with it. But if you had to emphasize the fundamental areas of differences between the two constitutions, uh, what would it be? Who, who, who should take that, Tim, Timothy or Christina? Uh, I'm going to call on on Christina in a moment, but I do want to raise a, a couple of things. And one is that, as you said, we do uh, devolve many more powers, have a smaller federal government, but we don't allow the states to violate individual rights in turn. This is, we have a very strong protection for all sorts of uh, individual rights, whether you call them civil rights or negative rights or, or what have you. And the, this beautiful language that Christina came up with about the right to live a peaceful life of one's choosing, or more broadly, the right to the fruits of one labors. I mean, I think I think that's really important. And for that matter, the what what is currently the 14th uh, amendment, the due process clause, or uh, we rewrote that into privileges or immunities, which is really where not natural rights are supposed to be protected. We then give the federal government and federal judges the power to enforce those rights. And we go so much as to in our new uh, section 14 of article seven, uh, constitutionalize Congress's power to establish legal causes of action, what what uh, lawyers know as uh, section 1983 claims. But uh, Christina, I think, wants to expand on this and, and show how this is really a document to facilitate human flourishing. Yeah. Um, so one of the major, you know, differences, I think, structurally is that the from um, what I heard in the last half hour, the progressive constitution is focusing um, more on safeguarding democracy and democratic institutions is more mature, majoritarian in ours. Ours, to the degree it's less majoritarian, is to try to maintain balance of balances of power among different power centers in order to achieve a better government. And I think at the highest level, both of the constitutions are aiming towards good governance. And I'm not sure I would even necessarily say that either system is guaranteed to be more progressive or more libertarian in its outcome. It would probably depend a lot on what the populations of people in such governed systems would you know, want and direct their governments 
towards in terms of um, how they ended up being. So I think that the main, the, the goal here is quite interesting and is maybe reflect the broadest goal that we see in both constitutions is maybe very reflective of the current moment and the concern that good governance is maybe mo- more of the problem than particular um, rights and regulations. But, you know, on the along similarities leading to differences, you know, I think both and most value systems are aimed at advancing human flourishing, you know, thriving both economically and socially. And the hard question is, what's the best way of doing that? And I think that's why I think both groups mentioned, this is the way we try to achieve better governance. Reasonable minds could disagree. There's probably other tweaks we could give. That's because that question has always historically been hard for any group of people trying to achieve anything. Um, And so the most major difference, perhaps, is that libertarians are more skeptical that that kind of thriving and flourishing can be achieved through force of government rather than through facilitating dialogue, voluntary interactions among people, and trying to move those softer kinds of power through discussion, um, convincing people that they should be tolerant or inclusive and those kinds of things. So it is similar goals, I would say, but a different view on how to achieve them, where, you know, libertarians want everyone to have a wonderful life. And the idea is that you're more like, we're more likely to be able to get it through a lighter touch government than through a heavier touch. Um, But that doesn't mean that we don't care deeply about everyone thriving and flourishing. Thank you very, very much for that. Well, why don't we, uh, I'm going to ask, uh, Carolyn and then Jamal to talk about fundamental differences between the two documents. And then we'll have closing arguments perhaps from Timothy and Melissa, if that works for uh, everyone. And friends in the audience, prepare to vote. And uh, uh, Tanea Tauber, our phenomenal head of town hall programs, will post a poll uh, in five minutes or so. And magically through Zoom, it will work perfectly and you'll be able to cast this crucial vote and the fate of the nation uh, hangs on your choice. So listen very closely to what uh, Carolyn, Jamal, and uh, Melissa and Timothy are are saying now. So Carolyn, how would you sum up the the basic differences between the documents and why should folks vote for the progressive constitution? Uh, Well, I mean, I think uh, Christina actually put her finger on much of it. Um, Democracy is um, actually the way we think that people um, should get to choose um, uh, how they want to flourish. Uh, Democracy is about we the people, the constitution opens with that language. We think our constitution um, more fully realizes the aspirations uh, of that language, which is so inspiring, um, but based on a, a concept of, of the empowerment of the people to make those decisions. And so as a result, we really wanted to make sure the structures of government we're inclusive and that we have free and fair elections. So the participation of all um, Americans um, can be uh, enhanced through um, a a constitutional structure that is protective of those essential rights. So I would turn it over to Jamal and I'm sure Melissa probably has um, some comments as well about the differences. Uh, And I'll just say, echoing what Caroline said, uh, that you know, I think we're not against limited government, uh, but we don't think of limited government as an end in itself. Um, it's a it's a means to an end. 
uh, and we're not in favor of big government. Um, we don't we don't think a big government is an end in itself, but it might sometimes be a means to an end. Uh, so in that sense, I think Christina is quite right that we're we both teams are interested in human flourishing, um, but uh, at least we like to think that we're not necessarily putting our thumb on the scale of any particular means other than self-governance. Uh, that, that I think, is an end in itself. Uh, and since the Constitution must be a Constitution for all, that has to be the, the overriding uh, principle. Um, and I'll, I'll just point out one of the specific areas uh, of difference in congressional power. Uh, I think consistent with what I've uh, just said, you know, we don't give Congress a general legislative power. Um, we do give it the power, um, an additional power that it doesn't have now which is a kind of, uh, there's a kind of subsidiarity principle um, that we've relied on, which is that there are certain areas where states might not be able to um, achieve objectives on their own and they require coordination. And so Congress can step in, in those instances. Uh, so it's very much geared towards having a functional uh, government that allows just the human flourishing that uh, Christina emphasized. Thank you so much for that. I, I think uh, the poll has just popped up on my screen, so I hope the audience can see it as well. And just to keep the order uh, uh, even, why don't we have uh, first closing statement from Timothy and then final words from uh, Melissa. The, the, the really essential difference is how we view the relationship between liberty and democracy. Libertarians hold that democracy is only an instrumental good. That is, it's only a good thing insofar as it serves liberty. Whereas the progressive view, as you've seen, is literally to limit individual rights in order to serve democracy. What that actually means in practice is that the state gets to eat first and then you get whatever is left over. We think that that's demeaning and degrading to individuals uh, as, as human beings and as rights-possessing creatures. We view the, the purpose of the government as liberating individuals to pursue happiness. And that means to enjoy the rewards of their good choices and to suffer the costs of their bad choices. If that's something that means a lot to you, then you'll support the libertarian constitution. If that's something that frightens you and you think that the state should, you know, wipe your nose before you go to bed every night and tuck you in and read you a nice bedtime story, you're going to support the progressive constitution, which limits your freedom in order to serve the desires of the majority. That's really the fundamental philosophical difference between the two. Uh, that was so eloquent. And we do have a little more time. And I think everyone needs a little more time to vote. Um, and you're all so inspiring that why don't we continue uh, with our uh, closing statements? And I think we're back to Ilya and Carolyn. So Ilya, have at it. Um, actually, Melissa um, was up next. Oh, I'm, please forgive me. I'm so terribly sorry. She certainly was. And um, Melissa, please uh, give us your closing thoughts. Sure. Um, I think to represent the progressive constitution as the embodiment of the nanny state is to do it a gross disservice. Um, at no point in our modeling of a progressive constitution did we envision that the state would be all-encompassing and all-consuming in the lives of individuals. Our view is simply that democratic institutions have to work in order for everyone to be able to exercise their liberty. And we agree that the opportunity to live a good life, to flourish within our government is vitally important. I think where we may differ is that we believe that securing those prospects for everyone is as important to, as ensuring that they exist at all. 
Wonderful. Thank you very much indeed for that. Let's continue. And who knows, maybe we'll get another full round in because we we, uh, have just a few more minutes and and this is extreme. Ilya. Sure. Um, A wise man said, if if, uh, men were angels, no government would be necessary. If angels govern men, then uh, I'm paraphrasing, government would be perfect. And so neither internal nor external controls would be necessary. But given the reality that men govern men, and we actually made a point to say that the male pronoun includes everyone. So read if, uh, you know, since everyone governed, people govern uh, themselves, then uh, the first duty is to empower that government to secure and protect your liberty, but then to uh, make it to control itself. This is, of course, uh, Madison's Federalist Paper number 51, my favorite Federalist paper that appears on my license plate. Um, and that's the key dilemma. You know, government is uh, uh, kind of a, a necessary evil that we secure to protect our rights. And democracy is, as Winston Churchill said, the worst of all systems of government except everything else. Um, you know, if we had, if there was a possibility to press a button and have angelic despotism, absolutely I'd go for that. Um, because fundamentally, the, the, the key value is uh, everyone being empowered to uh, pursue their own vision of uh, the good life. Uh, and so the government needs to protect their life and their liberty to do that. Thank you very much indeed for that. Uh, 64% of you have voted already. Um, I think then we'll have uh, Carolyn's uh, closing statement, and then we'll have the results. Carolyn, last word. To- well, I just want to make two points. Um, one is that um, just as a footnote, I think it's interesting that as the libertarian team updated, uh, modernized much of the spelling of the language, rather than changing the pronoun um, to be gender neutral, they just uh, mentioned that he should include she. Um, I think many of us, certainly on the progressive side, don't think he includes she. Um, uh, it's very different. Um, and women um, and other genders need to be acknowledged as as fully Human, um, uh, and not just a footnote that, by the way, you know, men includes women. Um, so that's, I think, maybe maybe a very important difference in many ways. Um, and I guess I would go back to my original point, which is that um, I think the the real way to ensure human flourishing, uh, the flourishing uh, of of all Americans, is to give them the choice about how their country is to be run, um, and that means democracy, the true protection of people's liberty and equality is a democratic system where there are free and fair elections, the government is responsive to them, and the government is effective at doing what the people want it to do. And that's what our constitution embodies. That is wonderfully said. I, I'm waiting for the results. And yes. um, I'm, 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 ah, uh, and they're uh, in now, and I think you all can see them. We have 47% for the libertarian constitution, 53% for the progressive constitution. Uh, congratulations to both teams for a close election uh, that requires no electoral college uh, uh, dispute. But um, most of all, thank you for an extraordinarily illuminating debate. You, you took this so, so seriously and so thoughtfully engaged with one another. And I must share the fact uh, that although some may emphasize your differences, I'm inspired by your commitment to civil dialogue and by the fact that you view our constitutional framework as one uh, to build on rather than to tear down and and, uh, start from scratch. This important project that that Jeff Yass uh, conceived of in a moment of constitutional vision will continue when we launch the conservative constitution. Uh, It's due on October 30th. Uh, Conservative teammates, 
that's the deadline to meet. And we'll come up with other convenings, both uh, on video, on podcasts, on uh, with our great partners at The Atlantic and the Battle for the Constitution site, and on all the National Constitution Center's educational platforms to continue this crucially important discussion uh, throughout this year and uh, the years ahead. So thank you so much to all of our panelists for their wonderful work. Thanks to our great audience for your great questions. Uh, and um, thanks to Jeff Yates for inspiring all of us to think about first principles of the Constitution of the United States. Thanks to all. Good night. Thank you. The Constitution Drafting Project was generously supported by Jeff Yaz. This episode was engineered by Greg Sheckler and produced by me, Jackie McDermott, along with Tanea Tauber and Lana Ulrich. To read The Constitutions, click the link in the description for today's episode, or visit constitutioncenter.org debate and click on the Special Projects page and then the Constitution Drafting Project link on the left. And stay tuned for a constitution written by Team Conservative, coming soon. On behalf of the National Constitution Center, I'm Jackie McDermott.